the theme for the afternoon talk. The title is The Teachings of Krishna. Small question before we start. How many people in here have been to India? (laughs) Good. Nice. Not enough. Those of you who have have, uh, been to India, either directly or indirectly, may have had some uh, knowledge or some contact with uh, the teachings of uh, Krishna. And uh, they fall very sharply, very clearly, into two primary areas. Both of them are extremely relevant. And one essentially concerns one aspect of Krishna's life, and the other attends to another. And you might possibly see in your listening this afternoon that there are certain kinds of parallels with our own life. And that's a core feature of uh, Krishna and uh, his teachings. Admittedly, it's a little bit uh, unusual for someone, uh, how should we say, years in the, the Buddha Dharma tradition giving uh, appreciative commentary on Krishna however first half deals of Krishna's life or section or part of it deals very very much with his heart and in his relationship with others and there are beautiful accounts probably initially from some initial story or truth going back a long time. And then the the poets came in and added and explored to it, and it builds up a a tradition, and the tradition is called Krishna. And in the early part of uh, Krishna's life, the significant and beautiful thing about it is, and something very rare, he brought in to spirituality into the sense of the religious, he brought in romance. He brought into it sensuality. He brought into it the erotic. He brought into it the dynamic of man and woman. And in our contemporary world, we would speak of the same gender uh, for a number of people. And gave emphasis and focus to that as a priority and as an experience of the lives of men and women, and I'm implying both same gender and situations, of course. He brought in the dynamic, as I said, of this relationship as a valid, significant and beautiful form of spiritual life. And we know, oh, we know only too well that religion, and especially with any ism in it, has and continues to have great problems with sensuality, great problems with sexuality, and great problems with the erotic, but not Krishna. And in looking at that dynamic of that uh, uh, relation, uh, relationship, it was a matter of allowing and bringing the heart open and out into that kind of contact that kind of communication. And so you will see in uh, Dear Mother India beautiful drawings and uh, paintings. They have some prints um, 
of them in my, my home in uh, uh, England, of um, Krishna and uh, Radha uh, together. Or you will see Shiva and Pavati, Rama and the Sita, as dynamics, as expressions of what it is to be in a close, in-love relationship as a statement of spirituality, as a religious event, and not in any way a kind of problem to it. And this dynamic, in this case of uh, Krishna and, uh, and Radha, it is said of this, of this period of time that this is an extraordinary thing here in the light of everything. Krishna was actually wasn't married to Radha. He was married elsewhere. <laughs> Go slowly for a moment. But in the, in the contact that sometimes takes place, a contact which is kind of mysterious, mystical, of how it can be that there is a... two people can meet independently and regardless of the forms that they that are established, and something transpires between those two people, something which is deep and profound, and sometimes going completely unspoken. And we wonder, what is that dynamic? What is that that sometimes it can happen, of course, with, uh, as I'm mentioning here, with the personal uh, relationship, but it can marry, happen in other circumstances as well, where there is a meeting of two people, something deep and beautiful is touched. It may go spoken or unspoken, but in that, something's happened in the heart, deep in the heart. What is, what is that? What is that that brings that out? And the early, this period, in terms of uh, Krishna's uh, uh, life, that sometimes, and there's another important aspect of the teaching here, and you and I and many of us have surely experienced this, it is said of Krishna that when he left Vrindavan, this is the area, the place where he had his upbringing, where the, his uh, relationships uh, st started, when he left there was no holding nor clinging nor nostalgia for the past. What took place was with great love and appreciation. And the wisdom that, and clarity that comes with it is that when something is complete, either through our intention or through the intention of another or through the dynamic of, dynamic of life, somebody dies. It's a great challenge in love, in true, pure love. There is no clinging to it. It is over. And to find that sense of completion. And, it, and in the old texts with Krishna, he had his friends, gopis, they loved him to bits. And Krishna is painted in India in blue. It's the colour of infinity, like the infinite blue sky and the infinite uh, blue, blue sea. They had great love for Krishna. But when Krishna left and moved on, he moved on completely. And the gopis realised this and didn't follow him all over India. Can we be with real love for another, deep and authentic love for another, and when that woman, when that man, when that person moves on from our life, that person, due to our great love of that person, is allowed 
to move on as well. And we're not running after. We're not running after. And therefore the love gives the human being, the authentic, real love, which is the great challenge for us in life, gives the human being the freedom to stay, the freedom to be with us, and the freedom not to be with us, even if we don't understand why she's not staying, why he's not staying, why this, why this, why this has happened. Our cognition, our mind, may not understand this, but love has the power to do it. The power to let people come into our life, to be close, to be extraordinarily intimate through sharing, through language, through communication, through eye contact, possibly through touch or whatever, through sharing, through sexuality or whatever. And that same power of that love which brings together, can that same love have the same power not to hold on to? The core thread of the teachings running through, through uh, Krishna with his life. As a reminder, reminder to, uh, to us that love, romance, sensuality, closeness and intimacy, the religious life is, when understood, the same event. As I said before, religion has simply not understood this. It's either made sacred monastic life, being a monk or nun, that's really special, or in sometimes in Middle Eastern religions, made the family very special, religious. But what about those people who are in a relationship, they don't have kids, they're just living together. To find the love which is touching and deep in that kind of contact and communication. And therefore we honour something through, shall we say, the romance of life. Very strong. The significance of love and the teachings of uh, uh, Krishna with love is it such a powerful event in the human life, in the human experience. It's so strong, whether you think of parents or your children or your friends or your neighbour or partner, husband or wife. It is such a strong event that, rather sadly, the confusion often is we make it the cause for our unhappiness. As if love the experience of it, the dedication to it, and unhappiness or despair or uh, jealousy or envy or worry has somehow some relationship to the love. There is no relationship to it, trust me. It's a complete human mythology. Love cannot cause unhappiness. It doesn't have the power to do it. Love can't cause jealousy. Love can't cause anxiety and problem. It's not, it doesn't, it's not love. Love, what is not love, is not love. 
So when there's worry, fear, possessiveness, jealousy, envy, and all these problematic mind states, not coming from love. It's at the expense of it. It's, it's coming from not seeing clearly. It's coming from holding on to. It's, it's coming from uh, identification with. It's, it's coming from ego, I, me, and my. And then the love is lost. But, then, but we don't want to admit that. And we say, oh, I'm so happy I lost her or I lost him or she's changed or he's changed. And, and it's because it's so difficult because I love this person so much. Oh, no, it's not because one loves this person so much. It's not because of the love. So some, love is something precious, something deeply beautiful, and it needs to be um, retained or, or sensed. And therefore, we recognize those problematic states of mind is due to other factors, not due to love. If it's due to love, there is no liberation. If it's due to love, there'll never be any peace of mind. If it's due to love, there'll never be any happiness. If it's due to love, if it's going to end up as start off in heaven and always end up in hell, it's not worth starting off. It's not worth it. But if we say, oh, love is something else. And all that ugly stuff that gets associated with it is not due to it. And then Krishna, as it were, there's another whole period of his life, not separate. And, and one could say from the Bhagavad Gita, those of you who been to India or you may have heard or read about it, but it's called the, the Song of God as it's translated. It's the, the great text. It's the, uh, the Torah of the Hindu uh, uh, tradition. And Krishna enters into what is called, what, what is called in fact, the battlefield of life, the challenge of life. And then through the dialogue with his close friend Arjuna, and this is where the importance of this comes in for us as well, it's not only being able to hold wisely and skillfully the matters of the heart, but equally the matters of life itself, of what it is to be in this world. And then in his reflections and his, in, in his inquiry, he says there are four primary areas that a human being is deeply concerned about. And they need, these four areas, genuinely need to be our real priority. And if you and I wish to really engage in life, in the action of life, in the, in the, the presence of life, these four areas will be in our daily consciousness. Because they attend, we might say, to the quality of our life. One of them has a feature of love in it, of course, is devotion. In the Indian tradition, it's bhakti, B-H-A-K-T-I, bhakti, to be a bhakti, a bhakta, devotion. And if we look deeply into ourselves and look into our heart, we might ask ourselves, 
What am I devoted to in life? What is really worthy of devotion? This extraordinary feeling which quite often it will ma- it can manifest of course through religion is often a very much a devotional approach to life. How does devotion show itself? What, what am I devoted to? What blocks off this exquisite feeling deep in the heart? Habit? Tendency? Being glued to the television? Is one devoted to making money? It's a common object of devotion in our culture. Is one devoted to a career? Becoming somebody with position and privilege and and prestige and status. Is that where one's devotion is going? Is one devoted to the nature? Is one devoted to looking into life? Are we devoted to really exploring the here and now? What's the outlet? Are there outlets for our devotion? Have we got lost and given a priority to devotion which is pointless and endless. So Krishna encourages us, look at this feeling of devotion. It's so easy to say, oh, I don't have a religion. I don't, personally, I don't have a religion. I'm not a Buddhist. I've never been a Buddhist. I will never be a Buddhist. But I appreciate and acknowledge people who are Buddhists. Appreciate and acknowledge people who have a religion and have outlets for their devotion. And we need to check in with ourselves. And that's what, is there opportunity in my life for the expression of devotion? What is worth being devoted to? As a parent, I'm a parent. Can I be, am I devoted to my, my, my daughter? Is that devotion to my uh, daughter and to my uh, two grandchildren? A devotion which is not possessive. Is it a devotion which is not saying to uh, uh, my daughter, not that she would take any notice anyway, of, of me telling her how she should do or what, how, she should, how she should live. But still, I could be devoted to giving support too. And I rather, I, I was staying with them, if I may say, a sideways step here. I was staying with them. They live in, um, live in um, South London. I live in a small uh, rural town in the west of England. And her partner, uh, the father, he's, a, he's a, a runner. 100 metres, 200 metres man. Training for the uh, World Championships and Olympics and all this kind of stuff. And um, so he's in the bathroom and I'm just about to brushing his teeth, just about to go into the bathroom. And my, my daughter, she, you know, she's 25, you can imagine, she said, Dad, look at that body. <laughs> <laughs> because I think his, the rate of fat on his body, I think it's something like 0.03%. He's <laughs> a runner. And she said, Dad, you could go to the gym. You know, I'm 62, come on go to the gym seven days a week, morning, noon, and night, and you could have a body like that, etc. On his back, he has a great tattoo. 
Yes, there is lots of them. But he's a fantastic t- t- tattoo on his back. I've always been asking my daughter why why she doesn't have tattoos. I like tattoos on the body. It's a great art form. And she said, oh, no, Dad. It's so painful having them done. My daughter's a nurse. Anyway, so on the back, midwife, on the back, the tattoo, it's written in English. Great statement. Greatness comes through sacrifice. Greatness comes through sacrifice. Good, really. If in life you and I are going to be really devoted to something, really, really devoted, I don't mean greatness in the ego sense, and hopefully he not either, but if we're really going to be devoted, we're going to have to make sacrifice. What are the sacrifices that we're going to make? What are we prepared to give up so that that which we recognize is truly worth devotion, truly worth our de- being devoted to, what am I prepared to give up for it? I'm just talking with my, uh, as I call him, my, he's not my son-in-law, I call him my son out of law. You get what I mean. <laughs> So I said to my son out of law, what's the kind of sacrifice of the athlete? And of course, recreational drugs. You do not, you don't take a drug when you're being tested for drugs every week. Out go the drugs. Out go the alcohol. The diet is so strict. He lives on chicken. He lives on it. Not my cup of tea, but nevertheless. There. He runs every weekend from April to September. So he sacrifices, he's 26 years of age, he sacrifices all clubbing. It's a huge sacrifice for a 26 year old, you know, etc. You know what clubbing is, don't you? Yeah, clubbing in. Yeah, of course you do. <laughs> so where there's a discipline, where there's a devotion, where there is a commitment, and his commitment is to running. 10 meters a second for 100 meters. 10 meters a second. If he's a third of a second behind the winner, he's three meters behind the person. I mean, can you imagine? This is running. Sometimes I'm out, I'm out running, not quite that speed, I have to say, that, just out jogging, and my friends will shout out, uh, out at me, you know, shout at me, Christopher! What are you running away from? So listen. <laughs> I have to stop and think. So, where we engage in some devotion, where there is a commitment to, it's going to require sacrifice. What am I prepared to sacrifice? Sacrifice has always been an essential part of spiritual life. What am I prepared to sacrifice? Here's into the second area. And in the second uh, area, it's service, karma yoga, shava, S-E-V-A. Lovely, lovely word, shava. And shava, service, action, karma yoga, comes 
from a particular place within the human being and the particular place it comes from is a realization inspired by the statement of Krishna the self of one is the self of all understand? the self of one is the self of all so when I am sitting uh, 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 up here so some feeling of uh, self arises I, I, I am sitting here this feeling of I, feeling of self this, is myself. this sense, this feeling of I this feeling of the self it's the same, 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 it's the same. The stories wrapped around the self, of course, may change. Not too much, I might add. They may change a little bit, the stories. The unifying factor called the self is shared. The feeling, the I sense is the same. The self of one is the self of all. <coughs> And I remember years ago when I, in India, and uh, one period I was there two and a half years and uh, didn't leave uh, India, and was with uh, a Swami, and we were up in the uh, foothills of the Himalayas, and there was a village down below, and people there in the village and the hills. And he said to me, what do you see? I mean, I knew he would just weep if I said, oh, Mountains, <laughs> a village. <laughs> and he looked down, and in his looking down, he said a beautiful one line statement. And he saw the people there and the, the village there. He said, All that I see is none other than myself, but with a different name and form. All that I see is none other than myself with a different name and form. Whoa, whoa, whoa. So out of that sense, who was it? I think it was John Lennon. I am you and you are me and we are all together. Krishna would have gone down on his hands and knees in front of John Lennon having said that. <laughs> I am you and you are me and you are me and we are all together. This sense of the eye. If this was realized, there'd be no more wars. There'd be no more conflict. There'd be an incredible amount of love and respect because the person who is in front of me is none other than myself. With a slightly different name, not always. There are 150,000 John Smiths in England slightly different name sometimes and a slightly different form wow from that comes service from that comes karma yoga from that comes shaver I've realized something I am you and you and uh, you are me and we are all together I've realized it wow in some extraordinary way serving others is serving myself Working on myself, coming out of my own problems and my own agitations and my own anger and my own blame and my own depression and my own problems with life and with food and with money and with relationships. Coming out of all of that is an act of service for others because it would be less pressure on the lives of others. Mm. Whoa. 
I'm here for others as much as I'm here for myself. Whoa. And of course there's a great deal of service here when our lovely bell ringer is walking around today and she's ringing the bell. It's an act of service for people. All the love and of the of the cooks and the team putting everything together. It's an act of service. It's an act of devotion. Another area which we're engaged in here, the third one, which uh, Krishna refers to, is meditation. Let's not underestimate the incredible, extraordinary potency of what meditation is. Leela said to me. About a hundred people on the retreat, and about twenty-five of you, a quarter of you or so, it's the first time you've ever been in a retreat, ever been in any kind of event uh, like 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 this. And for others, have had a little, and some many years. You know, the whole spectrum of the sangha in the hall hall here, and it isn't an easy thing. What is this? What is this meditation? And essentially, in an it's really, much of the time, in the very best sense of things, it's sitting around all day and doing nothing. But really doing nothing. N- not being, as we say in English, a couch potato. Do you know the couch potato? Is, uh, uh, I live in a country full of them. <laughs> and so it's not just hanging around and the mind drifting and watching watching television and having a beer out of the fridge. This is not doing nothing. This is still doing something. It's rather bringing the attention and being very still, really doing nothing, truly doing nothing, and then to see what comes out of that. And you'll know if you've been sitting just 10 or 15 or 20 minutes, and then you just you know, move the hand, or you you, you, you you scratch your head, or you stick your finger up your nose or something. What did you think, God, I didn't mean to do that. The feeling is I did too much. I lost the posture. I lost the stillness. I lost the moment. Truly doing nothing. And so, because that feels uncomfortable for human beings, who are mad, therefore... One calls it meditation. But really, we should re- retitle them and call them doing nothing retreats. Nothing to do retreats. Part of it is that in the non-doing, there is an opportunity to see what really is going on in the inner life. We're not making a lifestyle out of it. We're not saying meditation is more important than devotion to what matters. We're not saying meditation is more important than service to others because others are myself. Just saying that meditation contributes to getting us deep and clear enough so that we can live with love, without clinging and without fear. We can discover something beautiful and deep. And now silence, and something very beautiful about silence, and our stillness, the meeting of silence and stillness, is powerful. The meeting with silence and stillness is powerful. I had, um, I have, uh, after this uh, retreat, I have what's called the uh, DFP uh, 
program and my good co-teachers here know it uh, know it well. Dharma facilitators program, and it runs here and in uh, in uh, uh, other other places as well. And in the last meeting in uh, Totnes, the town where I uh, live, I invited a wonderful man who's a Jungian analyst. And very much with Krishna, you know, Jung at his very best uh, speaks about the wholeness of the human being. And Krishna is a, an embodiment, as others, of that wholeness of his inner life of love and romance, commitment and sensitivity and uh, sensuality with living in the world, being part of it and exploring it, that engagement in the, in the, in the charge of life, we could say. And Jungian analyst came to speak with us and we had some questions and answers with him. And the first words that came out of his mouth, really, I really touched and appreciated. It's a true statement of human beings. He said, human beings live on the edge. We live on the edge. And what we live on, the edge, is the edge of time. You and I, we're involved in time. Our thoughts, our experiences, our interests, our priorities are concerned with what? Past, present and future. Yet, in the very place of living on the edge of time, in the face of time, we're also living on the edge of the timeless the eternal, right in the same place, the edge of time and the timeless, the formless, that which is immeasurable, time is immeasurable. We can measure the past, we can measure the present, we can measure the future, they measure each other off. I mean, here we are as human beings, right on the edge of the time and the timeless. Let's take a real interest in the timeless, which has no birth nor death to it, no coming nor going to it. Let's take a real interest in it. And meditation and that silence and that stillness is an extraordinary contribution to knowing what life is like on the edge. It would be a great pity in our life if we just, our consciousness is totally lost in time. If all we ever give thought to is time, called yesterday, called today, and called tomorrow, and think, that's it. What a loss of a life. What a waste. So there's an encouragement with Krishna, and of course with uh, uh, Buddha. Let's see if we can find a certain stillness. Let's see if we can find a certain... Uh, silence of the being which may give the potential and the possibility for some discovery for our consciousness may then the fourth area last one he addresses is knowledge and in the dear old western paradise are we in love with knowledge mad about it mad about it and we've got so much knowledge that our dear libraries and our universities couldn't contain it all. Our poor little mind couldn't contain it. So we've had to conceive of the internet. 
because we, we don't know what to do with all this knowledge we've accumulated, 99% of which we have no use for. So we've got internet. And soon that will get filled up. We'll have to have an internet for internet. It's, we, because this knowledge accumulates. Krishna and the Eastern uh, teachings, in the best sense of them, say, yes, knowledge is important. Yes, knowledge is valuable. But what is the knowledge which is really important? And somehow, if knowledge which is deeply important must carry with it some transformative factor. And so, knowledge of the Dharma, knowledge of, shall we call it the voice of Krishna, we might say today, it's knowledge for transformation, not information. And that is the cutting line. Do I in my life, through listening, through reflection, through reading, through contact with others, do I in my life have access, make myself available to a knowledge which is transforming, not just informing? We listened to a, a talk this afternoon. The talk refers to devotion, to service, to meditation, to transforming knowledge. If out of your listening, and also to myself as a reminder as well, something touches well and deep. It, as we say, it lands well and deep for us. It reminds us of the importance of devotion, the importance of service, the importance of meditation, the importance of this valuable knowledge, authentic knowledge, real knowledge, powerful knowledge. It reminds us, and it changes us, it affects us. The knowledge has landed. You now know something. And it's not that what you listen to, you haven't heard before. I'm sure you've heard it before. There's nothing especially new about it. But has it landed? Has it landed deeply? Has it landed in our relationships? Is love kept alive? Are we exploring it in a whole variety of ways? Are we looking genuinely deeply into what matters and staying true to it because therefore we stay true to ourselves and true to each other? And if that touches us, let us say, then that voice of Krishna 2,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago, and all that's unfolded, somehow or other, through the passage of human beings, that's the same voice, the same people, are still sharing, are still communicating about these areas of life. Devotion, service, meditation, transformative knowledge. It's the same communication to the same people it's the same exploration 
Om to Krishna. May all beings live in peace. May all beings live in harmony. May all beings live with great wisdom. Let's have a quiet minute, shall we?